Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning and for giving us space again to open your word together. I thank you for these sisters of mine that you allow us to have our faces turned toward you together. I thank you that you invite us to discuss your word together and that you, Holy Spirit, are in our midst in each of us as your children and that you are guiding and directing, that you are um, leading us and um, that you are changing us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. We are grateful for that truth, and we ask that you settle that truth deeply into um, the soul of our being so that we might live out of that truth and um, continue to bring glory to you through our lives. We ask that you um, would be seen and only you this morning, that our discussion would be pleasing to you and that we would leave this morning um, changed by your word, Lord Jesus. Um, I ask that you would allow us to set aside everything that might be a distraction to us as we open your word. And you would allow our minds to be focused and our hearts to be tender to receive uh, what it is you would teach us today. We thank you and we praise you and we will give you all the honor and glory in Jesus' name, amen. In the last few weeks, we have begun to get a taste of what this whole idea of amplification means. We have seen John circle back around several times to the themes of light, love, and truth. When we practice obedience, we are practicing the truth. The truth, the word of God, reminds us that we are reflections of God's light as we choose to love him and one another. In this lesson, we will circle through a couple of the themes once again. And my prayer is that as we circle through, our understanding becomes more full. Today, we have a two-part lesson. As a side note, I will be reading from the ESV as its choice of language helps to accentuate one of the points John is trying to make. So I'm going to begin by reading the first few verses of the passage that we started studied for today, starting in 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the, Lord, why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want to sit for just a few minutes in these verses and drink in what John offers us in this text. In the middle of combating the false teachers and their heretical claims, John calls us to recenter on the basic truth of the gospel. 
John uses gentle language again, conveying his own love for his readers and by extension, the love of the Lord Jesus for them and for us. He reminds us to abide in him. Abiding in Jesus actually gives us confidence for his coming. Next, John attaches that word abiding to the word practicing. Practice, practices, practicing, these words show up seven times in these verses that we studied for today. This is a word that we will come back to again in a few minutes. But make note that John makes a connection between abiding in Jesus and practicing righteousness. And then John begins to share such comforting words with us, reminders of who we are. I wonder... Do you ever get weary in the battle? Not weary from carrying out your responsibilities, caring for the people in your life, doing too much or going here and there, but weary from the battling, from battling the deception that the world offers as truth. With this reminder that we are dearly loved children, John tells us that he knew his readers would be weary and probably already were. By gently inserting these comments, John speaks words of tenderness to his first readers and to us. He asks us, do you know how much you are loved? Do you realize how lavish this love is? that our Father has poured out on us. He calls us his children. And not only does he call us his children, we actually are his children. He loves us. The love of the Father God is unfathomable and yet so personal and specific. His love caused him to do more than a rescue, more than a sacrifice, more even than forgiving us. He went so far as to make us his children. It is in abiding in this love that we see him and are changed. Abiding in understanding of this love enables you to become who he created you to be, his beloved child, his precious daughter. In this understanding, we continue to move in hope toward his purpose for our life. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 tell us to be imitators of God as beloved children, to walk in love as Christ loved us. Our primary identity as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we are beloved children. When I live out of this identity, the one whom I most imitate, is my heavenly father. We have all seen it, either in our own lives or in the lives of another family. A child who imitates a particular trait, walk, phrase of the parent. A lot of times it is probably unintentional, happening because this child spends so much time with their parent. When my children were young, there were many times when I would be brought up short by something one of my children did or said because I would hear or see in me, in my child, something that looked or sounded exactly like me or my husband, Barry. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite phrases is, oh dear. 
In every situation, oh dear, can be applicable. I walk in on a child coloring on the wall, oh dear. We drive by a fender bender on the road, oh dear. I see, um, I see that I burnt the dinner and I say, oh dear. It was definitely a favorite of mine and continues to this day. You can imagine the chuckle that came when I heard one of my children, who was four at the time, exclaim, oh dear, when one of his older siblings broke a glass. Sometimes our children imitate us because they choose to, but more often they imitate us because they can't help it. They imitate us because they spend so much time with us. As children of God, we too must imitate our Father. As we practice abiding in Him, meditating on His Word, being with His people, spending time in prayer, we set ourselves up to pick up His traits and imitate Him as His dearly loved child. Let me read verse 2 again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As we work through this passage and on into the rest of John's epistles, this verse is key. It points to the theme of the gospel of the already and the not yet. We are God's children now, already. We are God's children. We are his beloved daughters, his lavishly loved daughters now. And what we will, will be is not yet seen. So when will we be like him? What does John say? John says that we will be like him when we see him. It's the already of being a child of God and the not yet of having shed our sinful nature and becoming like Jesus. John isn't telling us that change won't happen until we see Jesus face to face. He is saying it won't be complete until we see Jesus face to face. Paul tells us in Romans and in Philippians that God has begun a good work in us and will continue that work in us to form us into the likeness of Jesus. And he will continue that work until we see Jesus face to face. So how do we live in the meantime? We live practicing righteousness. There's that word again, that word that John connected to abiding, practicing. We practice, we fall down, we look to Jesus, we see him, we abide in him, we get back up in his strength, and in his strength, we practice righteousness again. And then John goes on to say something rather interesting. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If I have hope that I will be like him when he appears, and all who believe in Jesus as Savior do have that hope, John says that I will purify myself as Christ is pure. In 1 Peter, we get a little more clarification about what it means to purify ourselves. So let me read 1 Peter 1, 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, 
for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We purify ourselves by obedience to the truth. Now let's just make a distinction between purifying ourselves with obedience to the truth and redemption that's given only by the grace of God. So this purification is part of the sanctification process, not a part of the salvation process. Salvation is only by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. And once that is a one time event for all of your life. We place our faith in the Lord Jesus and we are saved. And he begins the sanctification process of making us like him. The Holy Spirit in us um, does the work. He begins to show us what needs to be rooted out of our lives. And that is where the purification, the purifying ourselves with obedience comes in. We purify ourselves when we make ourselves, when we make our flesh obedient to the truth. I have been truly changed and been given a new nature as God's daughter. Um, and because of that, I will desire to imitate the Father and will joyfully choose obedience to his commands rather than seek to fulfill the desires of the flesh. But this is a process. So there will be um, seasons in my life when the Holy Spirit is working on a particular sin pattern in my life that needs to be rooted out. And as we do that, as I um, purify myself by obedience to the truth in that matter, I, the Holy Spirit is making me more like the Lord Jesus. I will practice righteousness rather than practicing sin. It is so important to see these two pieces together. Practicing righteousness cannot be divorced from the primary and foundational understanding that I am a beloved daughter. That, and only that relationship with the Lord Jesus, is the catalyst to live life seeking purity. When I divorce the pursuit of purity from being a lavishly loved daughter, I become a legalist and I do not reflect God's great grace. Instead, I live in judgment and move through life with an attitude of condemnation. When I focus on being loved but do not allow that to influence every area of my life, I tend toward arrogance, excess, and self-indulgence. I allow myself to turn a blind eye to that which I know to be sin. I also avoid conviction or anything that raises a question about choices I've made or am making in my life. So, practically speaking, what might purifying yourself as he is pure look like? I'm currently in a season where I have a few extra responsibilities than what I normally do. And I'm also a person that likes to plan ahead. Um, I like to know all the facts, and then with that knowledge, move into executing my really well-established plan. Unfortunately, this tendency has usually led to me leaning on my own understanding. And just this morning, as I was walking with my dog, I found myself switching from prayer into planning, thinking of all the things I need to figure out and make note of. I'm not saying that having a plan is bad, a bad thing, 
What I am saying is that I know the Holy Spirit has brought conviction before about my tendency to lean on my own understanding, and I felt him nudge me again while I was walking. It's as if he was saying, dear daughter, you are getting whipped up again. Right now is not the time to be concerned about that. The purifying myself part comes in when I recognize the conviction and then choose to walk in obedience. For me, in that moment, walking walking in obedience was choosing to stop that train of thought and then purposely bring to mind a passage of scripture that would lead me to set aside those worries and leaning on my own understanding and instead quiet my soul and my thoughts knowing that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind the tasks when it is time, when it is in his time for me to do those. Abiding or not abiding in the identity of being a lavishly loved daughter of God necessarily affects all aspects of my life. If this is true, then I need to practice living out of the truth that I am lavishly loved. This is foundational to who we are. This is our primary identity as followers of Christ. I can't overstate its importance. And as such, let's pause for just a minute and think about that, that we are lavishly loved daughters. And while you're thinking, answer this question. So now, let's read through 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
With this section, John continues to refute the claims of the false teachers that Christine talked with us about last week. If you remember, John began his le this letter by speaking the, to the truth of Jesus coming in the flesh to live among us. John testified to having seen and heard and touched Jesus. The false teachers wanted everyone to believe that Jesus had not come in the flesh. Why? Because they wanted to separate the flesh from the spirit and in doing so assure themselves of salvation. And how would separating the flesh from the spirit assure them of salvation? It would mean that the spirit would never be sullied by what the flesh did. And not only would the spirit never be sullied, but the flesh would never have to be controlled or denied. They could continue living their sinful life without being convicted of that sin, without repenting of that sin, and without turning away from that ongoing practice of sin because they believed the sin in their lives did not have any connection to the spirit. It is this point that John addresses once again. If one claims to know Jesus, her physical life will be changed and will continue to be changed. The spirit and the flesh are inseparable while on this earth. Look again at verse 5. If Jesus appeared to take away our sin, and that's what John says in verse 5, then allowing us to continue uninhibited in sin is a contradiction to the purpose of his coming. And in verse 6, John tells us that we can abide in Christ or we can abide in sin. We can't do both. And when John is referring to abiding in Christ or abiding in sin, he's saying making a practice of, um, of sinning. Uh, remember, we pointed out that, I pointed out that word practice, practicing, practice, practices, um, an ongoing habitual lifestyle of sin, not ever being inhibited or broken. That's what John is referring to when he talks about abiding in sin. Here John is saying that if we are abiding in Christ, we will not live a lifestyle of habitual sin. We know from 1 John 1, 9 that those who are followers of Jesus will still sin, but their lives are characterized by recognizing sin, confessing it, and turning away from it. The arc of their life bends toward the Lord Jesus, toward surrendering to him, and toward obeying him, not away from him. Have you ever tried to create a new walking path? At first, it's really hard, and it can be easy to go back to the old path. The old path is well-worn and easy to navigate. The new path is bumpy, awkward, feels uncomfortable, and takes more work. If the paths are close together, you might find yourself making progress on the new path, and then all of a sudden you look down, and without even realizing it, you have switched back to the old path again. Making the new path takes effort. When I find that I've taken steps on the old path again, does it mean that there is not a new path? No. It just means that I need to switch back to the new path, pay attention again, be mindful again, be mindful of my intent, and practice the new path. In the same way, on this new path of living as a lavishly loved daughter, 
When I have looked to Jesus for salvation, I abide in him. I meditate on his word. I invite the Holy Spirit to search me and lead me. I am still flesh, though, and I will still stumble, and I will fall. I'm still learning this new path, but I'm held secure by the salvation of the Lord Jesus, and I can stand confident at his return because my position is dependent on him and his work and not on mine. Verse 7 tells us that the false teachers were saying that you can be righteous without practicing righteous living. This is the antithesis of what the gospel tells us. The practice of righteousness must be something that spills out into the everyday life, not because our righteous acts add anything to the grace that saves my soul, but rather because the righteous acts are the fruit that prove the seed of grace has taken root. Practicing righteousness cannot be boiled down to a list. Practicing righteousness requires an ongoing daily relationship with the Father that I am to be imitating. And it means that I will ask him, as King David did in Psalm 139, to search me and know me. We are flesh, and we do not uh, immediately understand all the things that the Lord Jesus wants us to walk away from. Um, as we grow in our understanding of who the Lord Jesus is, and as we grow in our surrender to the Holy Spirit, there will be um, things in our lives that initially we didn't see as sin even. Not because God is trying to trick us or um, snatch us up into a trap, but because he's kind and gentle with us and he knows that we are flesh and he gently... Um, reveals to us what is actually leading us away from him in our lives, what is holding us back from knowing him more. The Holy Spirit in his kindness um, will respond to our plea that he reveal sin to us in our lives. I think um, for so many years, as I just mentioned, um, I was consumed by leaning on my own understanding. And in my mind, it was just being a responsible person who had a lot of people to take care of. Um, and yet, over the course of time, as I um, asked the Holy Spirit to reveal to me what it was that was holding me back um, from loving him more, he very gently began to reveal to me that I was leaning on, on my own understanding rather than trusting in him with all of my heart. In fact, very pridefully, I always kind of snubbed my nose at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that does say, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your, on, on your own understanding. I'm like, I have. I've been given salvation. I trust Jesus. That's all I need. And so um, my interpretation of that was um, it kind of stopped at... Um, the point of salvation. I said, I'm not trusting on myself for my salvation. And I was kind of like, that's kind of a kindergarten Christian verse. Um, and about six years ago or so, the Holy Spirit, after many years of walking with him, the Holy Spirit was like, Lisa, now it's time. Um, now we're going to work on this. And, um, and he began to um, open my eyes to the pride of me leaning on my own understanding. 
But I, I think part of that opening my eyes came as a result of praying that prayer that I just mentioned um, King David prayed, which is, um, search me and know me. And he says that's in Psalm 139. And then in Psalm 19, David even goes on and asks God to help him, help David to discern his errors and that God would keep him back from presumptuous sins. We, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, ladies, and we can ask him to make it plain to us if there is something that is causing us to... Um, that is holding us back from knowing and loving God more. Um, and it's a process. It was many years, um, and it, it continues, um, that process. And so, like I said, this morning even, um, the Holy Spirit nudged me, your daughter, you're slipping back, you're slipping back into, and not in backsliding, you've lost your salvation, but you're setting yourself up in front of I'm setting myself, I was setting myself up in front of the Lord Jesus in my life. And I was choosing um, to not know him more in that moment. Instead, um, just to look to myself. And um, so I, I think there are times in our lives when um, we might be engaging in an activity that if we were to take a casual scan of our lives, we wouldn't think that there's anything in my life that um, fits the definition of what I think sin is. And um, in order that we might continue looking to the Lord Jesus as the author and perfect of our, of our faith um, and continue being changed as we look to him, um, let's go back to that purifying himself as he is pure and choosing to purify ourselves with obedience. And part of the obedience is regularly taking the time to um, submit to the Holy Spirit and invite him to um, open our eyes to whatever it is that he wants us to um, relinquish and um, push out of our lives so that we can have more capacity um, to love and follow him. So, in our last verse for today, John slips in one last identifier of those who are God's children. He says they love one another. In verse 10, John says, no one, I'm sorry, by this you will know, I'm sorry, my eyes totally just lost focus. Um, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever loves Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So God, or, so John is saying, if God is love, and if God lives in us and we in him, then love for the brothers and sisters in Jesus will occur as an expression of righteousness without exception. Just as God is righteous and is love, so we as his children, as we live in him, will practice righteous living, and will love. As we abide in the Father by practicing obedience and living in love to our brothers and sisters, we take on the nature of the Father, and it becomes evident that we truly are the lavishly loved daughters of the one true God. Let's be honest. Loving our brothers and sisters is not the easiest thing to do. Hello, sibling rivalry. 
But that's exactly why Jesus tells us in John 13 that the world will know that we are his disciples. The world will know that we are abiding in him if we love one another. If you are wondering where to start when practicing righteousness, Jesus said that the importance of loving one another was second only to loving God. Our primary identity is that of a lavishly loved daughter of the one true God. From that love, let's practice living rightly and loving well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your gentleness with us. Thank you for your kindness and your steadfast love. Thank you that um, you are with us and that you promise to lead us, that you are a good shepherd, that you love us, and that you will continue to change us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. Would you lift our eyes so that we look to him again and remind us that we are loved so that we might love others? We are grateful, Father, for this time and for this space, and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.